Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Secrets and Spies. On today's episode, we're reaching into the vault, although not too far back, to bring you my interview from September with author and former CIA analyst David McCloskey about his new novel, Moscow X. It received rave reviews here in the U.S., was on several critics' year-end top 10 lists, and will finally be released in the U.K. on January 18th, just a few days from now. So, for all of you across the pond, a gentle reminder if you will, go out and grab Moscow X as soon as you can and dig in. You won't regret it. As always, a couple house-cleaning notes before we get started. A big thanks to all of our listeners who are currently supporting us on Patreon. If you're not currently supporting the show on Patreon, please consider doing so. It's super easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Depending on the subscription level you choose, you'll receive a set of Secrets and Spies coasters or a coffee cup. By subscribing, you'll be directly supporting this podcast. Your generosity helps keep us going. Thanks for listening. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. David McCloskey, welcome back to Secrets and Spies. It's uh, I'm so excited to have you here. Hey, Matt. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So uh, you're here to talk about your new book, Moscow X, which is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get into that, um, I wanted to uh, turn the clock back a little bit. I know you've gone into this in the past, but for anyone listening who's unfamiliar just wanted to go into your background a bit, you know, how you came to Langley, what you did at CIA, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, uh, of course. So I uh, I got into the espionage business, I guess, pretty young. Um, I was actually 19 when I first my took when I took my first polygraph. Uh, I got recruited in a way that I'm sure would make a lot of my, uh, you know, our sort of OSS forebears. Uh, roll over in their coffins, but it was it was a job, you know, essentially a, a, a recruiter coming to campus uh, to talk about CIA. And I was a you know pretty young uh, freshman at the time, and thought it sounded you know like an amazing opportunity. And of course, also assumed that there was no chance that I would ever get in. So I applied, and um, you know was thankfully selected. So I went through the whole, you know, polygraph, full psych, medical, all that kind of stuff as a 19 to 20 year old, and then joined as an undergrad intern, uh, where I worked on Syria for my first summer, which was 2006. So we had the, you know, 34 day war between Israel and Hezbollah yeah. that summer. And then the next summer was the run up uh, to Al Kabar. And so I was just, you know, totally hooked. I joined full time after I graduated, and pretty much worked on Syria as an analyst the entire time that I, I was there. Um, and, you know, it, it started as a 
relatively sleepy account, right? Working on Syria in like 08, 09, you know. Before it got sexy. Wasn't wasn't the world. (laughs) Yeah, well, sexy might not be the right word. But yes. You know what I mean. Um, I know what you mean. And, uh, and then of course, you know, was there and, and had a front row seat when it, when it tipped into, you know, an uprising and then eventually a civil war, but I was an analyst the whole time and, um, you know, left, uh, about, oh man, you know, almost nine years ago now, uh, I've been out and, uh, have, have not been writing. So you were in, uh, NISA before the reorganization. Yes, I was I an OG Nisa. Uh, I was in Nisa, and then it became Mina, and then it became. I think there was actually something else in there before the reorg, uh-huh. and now, of course, it's it's the Near East Mission right. Center. That's I, I don't right. want to get too inside baseball for people, but so Al Kabar <laughs> is the Syrian nuclear reactor that the Israelis bombed in. Was that 08? They bombed it in 07, I believe okay. it was September of 07, because they. I remember, you know, they did it like the first or second week that I was back at school. So I had left and then they did it. So you missed it. I missed it. I saw it in the in yeah. the New York Times. Yeah. And NISA is the Office of uh, Near East and South Asian Analysis. Yes. There you go. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So yes. you, uh, you, you know, had this had this career at CIA starting out very young. I mean, they sort of like bought you out of the gate, you know, Um <laughs> And then, you know, I, I know you went and did some uh, consulting for a bit after uh, after uh, Langley. Um, tell us a bit about your 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 um, your spy novelist origin story. I mean, was this was working in the genre something you always wanted to do? No, it wasn't. I mean, it, it wasn't something that I had really considered uh, at all. I, you know, I had always loved reading and writing and I had read voraciously in the genre um, you know, before I joined the CIA and actually didn't read so voraciously when I was at CIA, I think somewhat common, you know, you have, you kind of see how it actually yeah. works and, you know, you, you read some of these novels and it, which I actually you know, really love most of them, like, you know, the kind of more shoot 'em up type stuff. That's really fun and action packed, but you, you know, you read that kind of stuff when you're inside, you're like it's so different from what I'm doing that it can sometimes be you know, it, it, it strains credulity too much. But so all that to say, you know, I didn't read so much when I was on the inside. When I left, I uh, I was really, I think, working through some stuff after having seen what was going on in Syria. You know, I'd spent, but basically worked my entire professional, you know, career up to that point on, on that country. I lived there. I had friends there. And um, I found that writing was just kind of a a way to process that. It was very cathartic. I, I was doing it without any real intent of publishing anything. It was just for me. Mm-hmm. But I came back to it. You know, I, I, I sort of, I realized how much I loved it. And I realized that it it sort of made me feel like me, you know, in, in a way. And so I had had this desire to get back to it, you know, somehow. So I, I you know, I, I put that project aside, bits and pieces of that thing that I was writing when I left became Damascus Station, eventually my first novel. But I had, you know, I, I was like, okay, this will just, I'll put it in a drawer somewhere and might be able to come back to it later. And turned out five years later, I had an opportunity for a whole bunch of reasons to spend, you know, a, a real chunk of about six, seven months writing full time. Right. 
and came back to it and Damascus Station came out of that. But there was no thought when I was inside CIA that I would really ever write spy fiction or, you know, become a novelist at all. What 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 spy novels really interest you? Like what 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 which ones inspired you? So I really like spy fiction that deals authentically with character mm-hmm. and that deals authentically, you know, as much as you can with the actual agency. Um, and also that, frankly, novels that I think deal really realistically with sort of setting, right? That that make you feel like you're there. And that that could be Langley, but it could also be you know, Moscow or, or Bahrain yeah. or, you know, Berlin. Um, so, you know, I'd say there's probably there's a long list of things that have, of, of spy fiction that's inspired me along the way. I think a few that would bear mention would be, I, I really love, um, I mean, you know, I've read all of the Le Carre canon, yeah. obviously, and really love it. But I would say um, Little Drummer Girl, it probably stands out to me as one that kind of, shows the long arc of an operation and how much, you know, in a fictionalized way, of course, but how much planning goes into it and preparation and sort of the human element to, okay, what's the boundary between intimacy and manipulation, you know, as you're, as, you know, um, as Charlie's being recruited by, by Mossad. So I really, that, that novel's treatment of that really inspired me. Um, across both Damascus Station and Moscow X. And another one I would say is Jason Matthews, the late Jason Matthews Red Sparrow trilogy, which was one of the first spy novels I'd read that showed, you know, I I really appreciated a lot of the procedural aspects of those novels and and obviously the tradecraft. But I, I loved how many Easter eggs there were for insiders in those books. Um, and, and how he really went out of his way to show the bureaucratic nature of the agency in a lot of respects and to kind of bring a lot of those quirks and foibles onto the page, I thought, in sometimes very humorous ways. So th- that that whole trilogy um, w- w- was a big inspiration to me. Uh, you know, and another novelist, I, I would say, that whose books have, have been, you know, on my bedside table when I've been writing has been Charles McCary's novels. Um, You know, I I find again there, you know, he's a former agency guy. You wouldn't necessarily know it from the books because he doesn't really try to go in depth so much on a lot of the trade craft or, um, you know, the ins and outs of the bureaucracy, but he deals in really, I think smart character driven spy fiction that kind of, gives you the gamut of human experience and emotion at the same time uh, in so much of his work. So those would be just a few I'd I'd mention as being inspirations to me along the way. So I guess hearing these inspirations, it sort of makes more sense now. But so one of the, one of the big positives about Damascus station as people saw it, and I think is certainly true with Moscow X now was the way in which you depict the intelligence world accurately. You know, you touch on stuff like CIA's administrative rules and regulations, you know, their kind of business travel guidelines, um, hall files, assessment cables, uh, sending the balance of your, you know, salary, back to the U.S. Treasury, stuff like that. 
Um, why is why do you think it's it's important to to really focus on this kind of minutia rather than just you know the gunplay and lobbing quippy insults at the bad guys? <laughs> well, as much fun as those things are, I um, I think for me it comes out of a desire uh, to draw the characters realistically and and fully. And when when I'm dealing with characters that are you know, CIA operations officers, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in Moscow X, they're, they're, you know, docs, um, or in the case of, you know, Proctor running, a you know, this sort of fairly aggressive, uh, component of Russia house called Moscow X, you know, the reality of, of those jobs is that a lot of it, you know, you're, you're sort of dealing with this, with this bureaucracy, you're dealing with these regulations and procedures, you're, you're dealing with, finance you're dealing with legal you know you're these yeah. kind of things comprise a significant amount of of your day and you spend a lot of calories thinking about them and worrying about them and dealing with them and so it felt to me like from a character standpoint if i'm trying to draw real cia officers who are embedded in this bureaucracy you know and, and there's a balance here right because if you really get into the minutiae of it it could be quite boring or the reader could feel like i'm sort of cramming you right. know some kind of bureaucratic education down their throat and they're just here for a good time. Um, so I have to be careful, but I think that in dollops and at the right point in the story, they bring the characters out, you know, I think and hope more authentically than if I just suppressed that stuff or if I invented, um, you know, and certainly there's a lot in the novels that are fiction clearly, but if I just invented crazy things that happened to them, because they seemed like they'd be more fun. I think the, the the books would would feel less like I'm dealing realistically with these people and with with the you know the real CIA that they work in. Yeah. I mean I I sort of look at it this way and I've I've droned on about this to people on the pod and off the pod, but I'm really kind of big on the ethics of writing in the spy genre, which is sort of to say that I think, I mean, there's a degree of fantasy and escapism at the heart of what we do. I mean, that's people sit down and they read these books for fun. But I think with this subject matter, like most people who read these books, it's the biggest, most concentrated look at international relations, geopolitics, intelligence work, military affairs that most lay people will ever get, you know? And so I, I think authors in general, but especially in this genre, have a duty to tell the truth and try to portray the world as accurately as it really is, you know? I mean, if you if you if you show it that like, okay, this really cool, awesome guy with a Glock and a Semtex can go and and solve this, you know, huge complex geopolitical issue with cultures stretching back thousands of years in 300 pages. I think after a while, people didn't have a tendency to think that that's, that that's real. And they wonder why, why it's not, why you can't so easily solve these issues in real life. I, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on those lines. Yeah, I, I no, I mean, I definitely, I definitely agree with the diet, with the diagnosis, right? That there is, uh, I think, a cultural tendency, or, or frankly, just you know, the porthole to the world of the intelligence community and CIA is largely through through Hollywood and through spy fiction, yeah. right? Like that is how most people consume it, and so over time and in some, there could be an expectation that. 
well, there really should be superhero spies, and why don't we have those, right? Um, because I've been reading about them and watching them on TV for two decades. Like, they must, they, if they don't exist, they should, right? And so if I'm seeing the intelligence agencies behave in ways that, you know, make them appear to not be superheroes or to be villains, well, then that's something wrong with them as opposed to the way the spy business actually works. Totally agree with that. I think where I kind of, where I would come down on it though is when I think about the the sort of discovery of a story and of character, you know, you're there's a there's a gray fuzzy line here of well, what's authentic for that character? You know what I mean? Like what is what part of the like archaeological site am I digging around in to like bring this bring this person? out and i think that you know i don't think there's anything wrong at all with having spy fiction that is much more you know it's it's fun it's glitz it's shoot 'em up it's not really connected to to reality and i read those novels all the time because i think they're just like great fun mm-hmm. um but i think for me at least you know i kind of feel like um i don't even know if it's a duty but it's just more of like the the, the world of of my books is 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 dealing with something that I think is approximating a more realistic version of the actual CIA. Like that's where I've kind of chosen to to dig around and where I where I like to tell my stories. Right. And so then as a res, as a result, if I you know all of a sudden have somebody in a you know tuxedo off running around with a gun and shooting people and running ops inside the United States of America, that's going to feel really inauthentic to the world of my books. And I think readers would probably be like, oh, like that's not, you know, I don't come to these books for that. I mean, they want to, you know, the, the baseline is you got to, book fails if you don't consume it, right? Yeah. If you're not, if you're not finishing the story, cause it's like, oh, there's so much jargon or just nothing's happening. And or you don't like the characters, you don't like the world, you're going to, you know, okay, you know, fine. I haven't, I have I've missed the mark there, but, you know, I think the world of my novels is hopefully, you know, pressing a little bit closer to the, to the bureaucracy and the ethos and the culture of the actual agency. And so that's, that's kind of where I've chosen to draw my line. Yeah. So, I mean, this, the realism, you know, led to really great reviews for Damascus Station. I mean, some of the blurbs you had were formidable. I mean, people like David Petraeus saying it was, you know, the best spy novel that he's ever read, you know? Um, people couldn't say enough good things about it. I'm wondering if, you know, how that one, that, that reception to Damascus station, how did it feel to be, you know, received so warmly with your, with your debut novel like that? Well, I mean, obviously it mostly felt good, um, <laughs> you know, cause you, you're, <laughs> I think you're kind of, at least me, you know, I'm sort of. But I mean, last time with the mask station, now with mask X, you're sort of bracing uh, for the shoe to drop, you know, and for for um, I don't know if it's a if it's a writer thing or if it's a me thing, and I'm sort of a pessimist by nature, mm-hmm. so I'm kind of like, all right, I'm, I'm waiting for the avalanche of terrible reviews and you know people telling me to sort of pack it up and find another job. So to to hear other things, to hear positive words about the novel, and to feel like it was generally well received is is a tremendous you know blessing and gift and and um one that i think again as a natural pessimist i'm sort of 
not preparing myself for it this time. I'm sort of equally bracing for, you know, uh, the roast. But, you know, I, I like to think about pretty much every day as a writer. And that could, that could deal with publicity or it could be, you know, actually just staring at a blank page, right? Any kind of part of it. It's sort of like a three-legged stool of, you know, fear, joy, and self-loathing. And it's just a matter of what proportion of those things you're going to have at any given day. So, you know, there's days where, you know, you're sort of high on some great reviews. And then the next day, you know, you're sort of staring at the blank page and you're thinking, I'm never going to be able to do it again. Um, so it's it's kind of all of those things at once and definitely not an equal measure. You know, it sort of goes up and down and the proportion changes depending on what's going on. But, you know, it, it was um, it, it was a tremendous, you know, full stop, it was a tremendous gift and blessing to sort of feel like, okay, there are people, I like Damascus Station, you know, and I wrote it in large part, and it's the same with Moscow X, with like my own sensibility in mind about what I want on my nightstand. Yeah. And so there's something there about like, you know, feeling like that, that, that voice, that story, whatever it might be, you know, is resonating with people. That's just, that's wonderful. So with that, with that reception in mind, was it, I guess, intimidating sitting down, figuring out how are you going to follow up Damascus Station with the next one? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was a terrible, terrible feeling. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it, it, I would be lying if I said it had, doesn't continue to some degree because, you know, Damascus Station came out of, there are guts of that novel that go back to the writing that I did right after I left the agency. And so there's something that's deep there and emotive and real. And, um, you know, I've been working on the novel, I guess you could say for, you know, I've been working on that book for seven years ish, yeah. you know, before it got published, no, not consistently, but, you know, it had been brewing for a while. And then with the second book, you know, not only am I not really dealing with the same cast of characters, nor returning to the same setting, you know, in Syria, I've got, you know, less time, new characters to discover, and more pressure, uh, you know, and I've got to do a whole bunch of research on on Russia, um, which I didn't cover at the agency and kind of get, get under this, you know, the hood of that. So it felt um, very daunting. And, uh, you know, you kind of, I think I'm, I was operating for a, a long time. And I think, frankly, still I'm wondering, you know, can I still bottle the same magic that Damascus Station seemed to have? Like, is that, is it a one-off or can I, can I do this more consistently? And that, you know, that's a, that's a real feeling. Yeah. So let's, let's dig a little deeper into Moscow X. Uh, what's the book about? Tell us about it. You know, the book basically started as the answer to the question, what might it look like? if the agency got really aggressive um, and really took the gloves off when it came to dealing from a covert action standpoint with Vladimir Putin. And so the, the title of the book, Moscow X, is the name of a fictional component of the CIA's Russia house in the novel um, that is charged with taking this very outside-the-box aggressive uh, approach to dealing with Putin. And um, the the... The wonderful, or one of the wonderful protagonists of the novel, and a case officer named Artemis Proctor, the chief of Moscow X, um, taps two CIA officers who are under non-official cover, Knox, what we call them, uh, to uh, 
to basically go and get close to and recruit Putin's money man, one of Putin's money men, with the idea that the agency will make Putin believe that a coup is underway when one is in fact not, to kind of destabilize his perception of his hold on power. In doing that, they get close to the money man. The money man's wife, Anna, is a Russian banker um, who is not at all what she seems. She's actually a Russian intelligence officer. She's the uh, Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR's version of a knock, and she is playing a game all her own. Uh, you know, so it's it's obviously a book about modern day espionage, but you know, I also like to think that it's a book about vengeance and, and loyalty and, and truth, kind of in the umbrella amid this world of really covert war between uh, Washington and Moscow. So that's a bit of what the novel's about. So as you said, there's sort of there's only a couple characters returning from Damascus Station in in this one. It was very happy to see Artemis Proctor as one of them. Um, I was sort of curious. I mean, while you know Sam Joseph ended the last book with some professional issues on the on the horizon, presumably, um, I think maybe a lot of authors would have just sort of written him out of that situation, and you know kept him around for, you know, familiarity, safety, that kind of thing. But you you didn't do that. I mean, you you have new protagonists here. There's, you know, Proctor, three other principal characters, Sia, Anna, Max, that you talked about. Sia and Anna have this kind of, as you've hinted at, this weird kind of back and forth play between each other, trying to co-opt the other for a bit. Um, so was it, was it, a challenge finding these new protagonists to 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 lead the book was that a challenge you sort of actively wanted to tackle? It was, so I, I did I did want to challenge it in the book, and that was part the creation of uh, or the discovery of new characters, and then I think part also setting a lot of it in Russia and kind of purposely not going back to the Middle East or to Syria. So those were those were definitely on my mind when I started writing the book. Um, you know, I, I felt like, uh, I, I also felt, and I, and I honestly cannot really explain why, I didn't want to do a series where it's like Sam Joseph book one, two, three. Like, I, I, I didn't want to do that. Yep. You know, um, I, and I read tons of those. You know, I read all the Brad Thor books. I read the Jack Carr books. I read the, the Daniel Silva books. I, I like there's something really fun and satisfying about that progression. But as, as I was doing it, I just didn't want to do that with, with Sam. Now I, I might do it with Proctor to a degree, but I think my books are always going to end up being a little bit more um, polyphonic than, right. you know, those that just kind of follow, follow the, the main protagonist throughout. So, so that was also in the back of my mind. And, um, you know, even though I did sort of write Sam at the end of Damascus Station into some trouble, you know, I think it's nothing that I couldn't get him out of eventually in the world of of the novels. Yeah. Um, and in fact, he he may he may return in the third book uh, for a bit. But those that was kind of I think all of that was going through my head when I started writing. Proctor wasn't even going to be in the book, but as I was writing it, I felt like she was missing is all I could say. And then I just started to plug her in and, you know, she took off in her own deranged ways as she does. Yeah. So one of your 
I guess, strengths, I guess, as a, as a writer, as was, you know, as a lot of people said after Damascus Station is the way you write female characters. I mean, so there's Proctor. Proctor's kind of her own kind of thing, I guess. <laughs> but I wouldn't really. It's, it's hard. To, it's hard to put her in a box. I, yeah. I think, yeah. You know? it's, yeah. yeah it's, she's, she defies. She devised easy categorization. Yeah. She is all things at all times, kind of. Um but so you had Miriam Haddad and her cousin in Damascus Station. In this one, you have kind of another two-hander with Sia and with um, and with Anna. I mean, and none of them are none of your female characters are just sort of accessories and air or window dressing. I mean, they're not sullen victims to kind of borrow your words there. Their arcs are kind of broadly uh, empowering, and I mean, it's kind of rare. In, in this genre. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you do that, what your approach is to that. I certainly, I, I didn't start either book with any kind of intent that the protect, like that, that, you know, I, and I would say, look, like there are many different types of characters in these novels, yep. but I think Damascus station sort of starts as Sam's novel. And I think by the end it's Miriam's. And I think you could, make a similar case here that by the end of of moscow x you know we sort of this is anna's book um and that process was very organic and unexpected you know i I generally have adopted approach when i'm writing of going toward where there's energy Mm -hmm. and feeling like and and trying to to you know sort of let go of my own ego or any sense I have of structure or outline and let the story drive things. Once I feel like I've kind of gotten down to a point where I I've I've hit the river that's running and I can just kind of go with it, you know. Um, and I think in both novels, it felt like okay. Once I hit something in Damascus Station, it's like okay, Miriam. I would write. I I, I write a lot of stuff that doesn't make it into the books in an effort to discover the characters to figure out what they talk like, what they wear, what they think, what, you know, what, what they're afraid of. Um, and as I just discover them, I, I think in those cases, I just felt like, Oh, there's so much energy here. I'm just going to kind of let it, I'm going to let it go, you know, I just yeah. follow that. And that's, that's it. And so, you know, I kind of, um, I, I don't have a I don't have a sexy answer on why I chose them because I don't really think I fit that way. I don't you know I think I sort of found that story and that voice in a way that felt like it worked and had energy to me, and so I just sort of captured it on paper. You know, um, that's the best way I can describe it. I mean, you know, I I think that my first attempts at writing a lot of these characters' voices are always very. Um, like they don't they don't work ultimately or they wouldn't work in a book because I'm just getting to know them or just sort of starting to see a little glimmer of them. But, you know, as I write, as I write, you, know, you start to realize who they are and hear them more effectively. And then you're kind of like, all right, I'm rolling with that. And I'm just going to I'm just going to let it take me take me on a ride. Um, so I wish I had a, I wish I had a better answer, but it's just this very organic thing that kind of comes out of the writing process, I think, as to how I find my characters. So this book um does a lot of work with 
interesting non-traditional forms of covers for its officers. I mean, there's one with as an FNO that I was new to me. I don't think I've ever seen that before depicted. Um, just wondering if you could talk us through, you know, yeah, these different types of covers that uh, the, you know, three kind of principal officers in this story have and the benefits, I guess, that that gives for operating in a denied territory like modern Russia. There's three three characters in the novel that are operating under forms of non-official cover. One yeah. of them, Sia, who is a, a London-based lawyer, right? So she's, she's actually a lawyer, but she's also a CIA officer. We have Max, who is maybe has the most interesting form of, uh, of cover in that he is, um, in the world of the book, a, a foreign national officer. I had to mess around with the actual title here, thanks to our friends at uh, the CIA's Publication Review Board. Oh, that's um, interesting. But, but he's basically a you could think about his role as being he, he's a Mexican national, right? So he's not an American citizen. Um, and he is, but he's a CIA officer. He's yeah. not an asset. His, his grandfather in the novel had been an asset, but the family business, which is this thoroughbred kind of breeding and, and, and delay operation in Northern Mexico is essentially a CIA front or it's kind of the, the way it's depicted in the novel it's like a, a jv with the cia between langley and between the castillo family mm -hmm. um and so so he has this sort of even more interesting form of cover which is like he's actually he's actually an officer but he's kind of not you know and he doesn't have to he doesn't have to do a lot of the bureaucratic stuff that like sia would as a doc and then anna is um a member of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. And the Russians are more creative and flexible with a lot of this stuff than we are. Yeah. Um, but she is what the SVR would call a member of their, um, and I'd butcher the Russian if I said it, but a member of their apparatus of attached employees, which means that she is an SVR officer, uh, but she is under commercial cover working at a Russian bank, uh, which enables, you know, and then, to, you know, the other point of your question is all these, so that's a setting for these characters. And you think about, well, why is that useful to yeah. these intelligence agencies? And really here, you know, you think about a world of ubiquitous technical surveillance. You think about sensors everywhere. You think about the, the, the you know, just incredible amount of, of, of data, the ease of analyzing it. It's very hard um, for, let's take the world of Damascus Station, where you have case officers who are operating at an embassy. They're under diplomatic cover. But they're, you know, they're employees of the United States government, right? How hard is it in the context of modern Russia for, uh, even if you put the CIA stuff aside, for someone from the State Department to go and meet with a Russian that, that shouldn't be meeting with Americans? You know, that's hard. Um, the Russians could figure that out. They could ask questions. This person could, you know, be disappeared. Um, when you're dealing with, you know, a London-based lawyer who's got kind of this, you know, shady law firm, or you're dealing with a Mexican national who's, you know, selling racehorses, those kind of interactions are much easier to orchestrate. Um, and so, so there's, you know, it, there's an indirect nature uh, to the, to the trade craft here that is, that is really increasingly necessary uh, in, in the world that we're living in. So I did choose 
Well, and then I would say from a storytelling standpoint, um, you can give these people, you know, the, 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 the thoroughbred, you know, operation is a great example of, well, I can just create a really sexy bit of cover for somebody that can dial up the story um, more so than if you just have a, you know, second secretary uh, working out of, you know, the embassy in Moscow, Uh, all of a sudden I can deal with a, you know, multi-billion dollar horse racing operation, right? And bring that into the story and think about how that could be used to drive plot points or character points. So all that kind of stuff came together and I thought that it it would work to, to you know, step out of the world of embassy operations and to deal with the world of really commercial operations in this book. So with Damascus Station, you had the benefit of your kind of whole professional experience at Langley, you know, being devoted to Syria, the civil war, the Assad regime, um, in this one, you really kind of shift gears a bit. I mean, Moscow X is set broadly across Russia, Mexico, various parts of, of Western Europe. Um, was it, how, how was it kind of, yeah, shifting gears into these new kind of settings and cultures and different kind of political systems? Uh, what, what resources helped you kind of research this book? Yeah, I, I did have to do a lot of, a lot of research, uh, which maybe was a mistake, um, <laughs> because it, it just took a lot of time. So, you know, with some places I had, you know, the mental travel log, right? Like, um, spent a lot of time in London. Like, you mm-hmm. know, that it's like a lot, a lot, a lot of the book is set there. You know, I sort of, I have the memory to deal with. I can, uh, that was a little bit easier, you know, um, Russia was harder. Uh, and the process there was, reading pretty much everything I could get my hands on, not just about the high politics, but like, you know, books about St. Petersburg that deal with, okay, what's the traffic like? And what's the cuisine like? And all, you know, what do people wear? How do you like, what do people look like when they're walking? How do people walk? You know, I mean, you just all, all these kinds of things that you're trying to absorb to create the, um, you know, the, the quote unquote fictional world of, of the novel, but that these are the kind of facts that, as a novelist, you don't want to get wrong, right? And, and and if you put them in in the right quantity, they make the book feel real. They make you feel like you're actually in the city, you know? Yeah. There's plenty plenty of books. Like, if you don't do that, you don't feel like you're there. You're told you're there, but you don't actually, you know, as a reader, but you don't feel it. And, and I'm, you know, hopeful that with Damascus Station and then now with Moscow X that, like, the setting becomes a character in that way. So it's a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading of stuff that, you know, you might not normally think of if you're trying to get up to speed on Russia. Um, and then it's a lot of conversations with people who, who have, have lived there and spent tons of time there. Um, because, you know, if I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's it, it's November and you're walking around St. Petersburg. Like, what does that smell like? Um, you just talk to some people from St. Petersburg and they'll kind of talk, you know, about different, different smells that come in on the Marine wind and like what it's like to be there and what it feels, you know, all that kind of stuff is just invaluable. So it's a, it's a lot of that too. Um, and even with places that I've been, you know, I find that doing that is helpful because sometimes when you're there, you're kind of like, you're not focused on that. You're not absorbing all these things, but then you talk to someone who's, you know, who grew up and has spent their entire life in, in London. And even though I, know the place generally you're kind of like okay yeah that you're, you're bringing new new light on the setting to me that i can work in through a character's perspective so it's all those things but 
Um, yeah, man, it was it was a lot of work. I would not recommend if you're trying to get a book done quickly. Put it that way. So, what was the was it was it? I think I kind of know the answer to this. Was it difficult finding your way through this through this book? Yes. Yeah, it nearly killed me. Uh-huh. Not like literally, but it was very hard. It was very hard to write. You know, I mean, I'm. I'm sort of, I think maybe coming to the realization that it's just hard to write novels, go figure. Yeah. Uh, so it's just going to be hard. I think I started with some kind of delusion that because I had done it once, the second time would be easier. Mm-hmm. And I found that that was absolutely not the case. I mean, for a lot of the stuff we've talked about, it was, it was more research. Um, I think there was a... I started digging around for the wrong story or a story that didn't work to start. And I got pretty far down the path. Like I probably, I probably wrote almost a hundred pages on a plot line that just fizzled and, and died. And I knew that it, I think I knew after 30 or 40 pages, it wasn't working, but I kind of kept banging away at it to see if it would work. And I eventually just had to throw it away. So there were, there were months of that. And then it was just like, okay, it's, move that aside, start over from a clean slate. So that was mixed in too. Um, and then, you know, obviously it didn't help, uh, you know, from a, from a story standpoint and, and the, the creation or sort of the, the rendering of the setting, the invasion or the more, you know, sort of uh, full-throated version of the invasion that happened in, in February of 22, like it just recast I couldn't write the book and not have that be part of it in yeah. some way. And so the setting of, okay, well, what does, what is it like now in Moscow and St. Petersburg now that we're in much more of a fortress Russia situation than we were two years ago, that has changed, you know, daily life there. It feels different. Like I, I, I felt like I had to capture that and that, that I had to do another kind of phase of, of research, um, to get my, you know, to get under the hood there. So all those things just made it very challenging to write. I'm very happy with how it's turned out, but it was, uh, it, it sort of fought its own creation every step of the way. So this sort of leads kind of directly into my next question. So you were on this podcast with Chris in January of 2022, talking about Damascus Station. And then a couple yeah. weeks later, Putin fully invades Ukraine. And since then, you know, there's been these uh, string of mysterious explosions and fires across Russia. And, you know, I don't know how that happens, kids. Don't don't play with matches. Um, so that wind up for and I'm sure there's various overlapping saps and there's allied services. And I'm sure there's a JSOC task force involved in all of that, not just focus too much on attribution. I know better than to ask you about that, but all that wind up to, so what was your, what was your reaction to the invasion when it happened? And what did you, what's more kind of specifically, I guess, if you can say, what did you have to change about the book after it happened? Like how much rewriting was involved? If any, really, I don't know. Yeah. So I had to, rework a lot of the way I framed the setting. Mm-hmm. So in in the chapters where you're starting you know where you're in and, and and this was this was the this was the kind of maddening part because there were things I had to rewrite because they weren't true anymore, but those were not those were sort of few and far in between. I felt like the plot could still work 
largely. It was more that throughout the novel, there would be missed opportunities if I didn't go in and add things to really make you as the reader feel like you're, you're under the hood. Yeah. Like you, you, you feel what it's like to be in Petersburg or Moscow right now, or you feel what it, what it's like to kind of go in to Russia as a knock. I mean, that would always have been a terrifying prospect, but even potentially more so now. And so it, it felt like throughout the book, I had to figure out how I brought that to life in almost each and every scene. And, and what I, when I'm teeing up what a place looks like, or when I'm in dialogue with characters, you know, when they're in Russia, like how is this stuff coming up? You know, is, is this a natural point in conversation where someone might mention something about the war or something related to it? Or, you know, there's a scene in the, in the novel where Anna is walking around a neighborhood of Moscow and, you know, she comes upon a, uh, a big mural uh, of Putin, you know, that is fictionalized, but felt like, you know, not so hard to imagine in the kind of, increasingly sort of neo-Stalinist setup that he's mm-hmm. got going for him. And so things like that felt like they had to be had to be worked in. I, I will say, you know, I said not much had to change the plot side of things. It's not entirely true because I had a kind of buildup of several provocations in older versions of the novel that led the CIA to get to this point where they said, okay, we're going to take the gloves off. And in the context of the war in Ukraine, it actually felt like all those things are like they've already happened or they just sort of felt increasingly small beans. And so I just I kind of had to work that stuff out of the story and almost just start from a much more um, personal affront to Proctor, which takes place in the first couple chapters of the novel that gives us a window into how the Russians operate and then creates a kind of character driven reason um, for Moscow X to undertake this very, you know, sort of, uh, daring and unconventional operation. So all that kind of stuff happened a little bit later in the book. And I felt like with the war, it's like, I got to figure out a way to pull this forward because your average person who's coming to this book is going to say, okay, well, the Russians have already done all this stuff. Like, how is this news to the characters? So all that had to be worked out. Right. Um, Proctor has this monologue pretty early on in the book where she says, you know, the Russians have been repeatedly poking us again and again for years, constantly pushing the envelope through things like uh, election meddling or directed energy weapons like the Havana syndrome, um, uh, equipping the Taliban with IEDs to attack our troops in Afghanistan. Do, Do you see the outbreak of this war in real life as sort of like the next logical step in that, in that, in climbing that escalation ladder, you know? If there was an Artemis Proctor leading Moscow X a couple years ago, do you think what we see now in Ukraine could have been prevented? I think that that counterfactual would definitely be above my pay grade. But I do think that you can draw a line, you know, across, I mean, going back probably further than this, but, you know, you think about, okay, the, the war in, Georgia, you think about uh, Syria, you think about, you know, this run of, I mean, you mentioned a lot of them, but a run of assassinations uh, of, you know, oppositionist defectors um, overseas. You know, you think about, uh, and at home, you think about um, 
directed energy, you know, attacks against our our intelligence officers. You think about, you know, noodling around in our in our grid, in our infrastructure, yeah. ransomware attacks. Like you, you just sort of have this, you know, fairly uninterrupted uh, string of Russian provocation and sort of poking around to figure out not only to make, you know, create problems for us, but to figure out what the response is going to be. And and I do think that, uh, oh, Ukraine in, you know, 2014, right? I mean, and, yeah. and the sort of, you know, sort of hybrid war that ensued afterwards. So you take all that stuff and I think it's pretty easy to paint a picture of a, a Putin and the, and the men around him in the run-up to this war uh, saying, look, you know, not only is this going to be done relatively quickly, right, but this is going to be like the other ones. And the Americans will talk a big game and, you know, probably do some things to support the Ukrainian, you know, the rump Ukrainian regime or whatever is left that, that, um, that will bother us. But they're not really going to do anything. And I think, um, you know, they've obviously probably been somewhat surprised by how, uh, you know, I, and there's a lot to talk about with respect to the way that we've supported the Ukrainian government. But I think with the largely effective response that we've had to the invasion so far, um, that, you know, probably was was unexpected on the part of, of Vladimir Putin and the men around him. So, I do think that string that Proctor talks about is, you know, you can draw those kind of connections, but would he, if we had taken a fuller you know, and more direct kind of approach to any of those, would they have stopped? I mean, I think if we had done, if we had, you know, and again, this is way above my pay grade, but I think, I don't think that if we had done anything with respect to the assassinations or with Syria or whatever, I don't think that would have necessarily changed the calculation in Ukraine, but it's possible that if we had um, approached Ukraine differently over the past eight or nine years that maybe the Russians would not have decided to invade in this way. But again, I'm just speculating there. Yeah. I've got to ask your take on uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Wagner group. <laughs> um, boy, I, I mean, you know, I was watching those events in June and yeah, you know, as part of me was thinking like, cause I've got, you know, the, this, sort of fake coup in the novel, you know, uh -huh. and then all of a sudden Prigozhin is out there, you know, potentially trying to pull off the real thing. And uh, I, I mean, I have to admit my first thoughts were, well, how am I going to have to, what will I do to the novel if they pull this off, you know, and if Putin is, is ousted, I, I didn't have any good ideas. Um, I think you already had galleys out too. I think I think I, I think I had a galley oh, yeah, yeah. at that point. We had point. galleys. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. Hundred, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like it was, it was at the point where it was like, I can't, I can't change anything really. I mean, I could have maybe changed a sentence or two here and there, but I think what I where I landed was if Putin had gone, I would have, I probably would have done a little bit of what I did in Damascus Station, and the whole book would have been framed as some kind of almost alternative history of the last days of Putin. And I would have, you know, yeah. would have framed the novel as happening in like the very recent past, like in the last couple of years. Um, because I couldn't, it's like, I just couldn't write him out. I couldn't write in all of that stuff at that time. Um, so that was, you know, selfishly my, my first thought. I mean, you know, I, I kind of see 
some real patterns with Prigozhin and like Russian elite politics going back hundreds of years where, you know, you have this sort of spurned uh, courtier who has been elevated by Putin and who, you know, on his own did not have, you know, really for a long time, didn't have his own power base outside of Putin. I mean, he was elevated by Putin as the sort of outsider brought into the system to do um, nasty and somewhat deniable things, you know, for the czar. Um, And then, you know, he kind of reacted as a spurned courtier might and went and tried to rectify his own, you know, and there's a lot of different speculation on this, but it kind of seems like at least one read is this guy thought he was going to be on the outs and wanted to make sure that he, you know, wasn't going to be. And I don't know what was communicated to him to make him call off the march, but it kind of seemed like, I was surprised, and I, maybe I shouldn't have meant to see that. It didn't seem like whatever support Prigozhin thought he was going to get inside the military and security services didn't really manifest. And neither did anyone really stick their neck out for Putin. So you kind of had just this fence-sitting. Freeze. Yeah, it was just everyone's kind of sitting around looking to see what happens. Um, and Prigozhin, you know, blinked in a lot of ways um, yeah. and, and may, maybe never would have been able to take the final, you know, the final blow uh, because it's possible that he thought he had some support from somewhere inside, you know, the military or the FSB or the Roskvardia that he d- ended yeah. up not having. And, and he just backed out. Uh, what's even more fascinating to me is why he thought he could continue to, um, you know, go in and out of Russia after Liz. that happened to live you know because you just don't get to do that um when you when you oppose you know the czar in the system you 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 die um and i think you know putin probably killed him a couple months later and in russia to demonstrate like i didn't need to kill him because i'm so powerful but i did uh and and he obviously did it i think in russia as a sign that you know you're just i can i can do this wherever I want it in whatever yeah. manner I want. I'm in charge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I struggle to call it a coup because I don't think he actually intended to, to overthrow the regime. I think he just wanted to throw a fit. And I question if he backed down because he saw that if he kept driving to Moscow, there's a chance that the regime could have actually had fallen. And he mm. didn't like, if you break it, you buy it. And I don't think he wanted to buy it. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I think I, I've, um, been interested to see the, the varying ways that different like news outlets and you know, podcasts have referred to it. It's like, it's, is it an abortive coup? Is it a, like, what, what is it? Um, but I, I could totally, uh, I could totally see that, that he was perhaps surprised at what happened and how far he may have gotten. And he maybe emerged from his rage blackout to your point, unsure of what he might do if, you know, if they actually got there and they were able to physically, <laughs> physically take the Kremlin, you know, if everyone yeah. just sort of continued to stay back. I, I seriously questioned if he could have, I, I think he could have done it. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, the, that's the crazy thing about these kind of elite maneuverings is that, you know, until you get there. Yeah. I mean, who, you know, who knows? Are, are, are 
what elements of the you know the presidential kind of administration or or what elements of the military are actually going to stand up versus who might just say that they're on vacation and and sit it out you know you, you kind of you don't know until you until you get there and it's it's very possible that to your point people would have just said okay let's let's sit it out and the, and the Wagner guys could have could have had their run of the place you know i'm sure it would have been bloody if they'd gotten into the kremlin yeah. or anything like that there would have been yeah. bloodshed and, and there already was from what they did um but you know yeah it's very possible you know you, you talk about that 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 fence sitting and sort of the rest of the russian elite kind of sitting on the sidelines and and waiting to see what what happened i it's also sort of struck me the reaction of ordinary russians I mean, Russian yeah. popular opinion is almost impossible for us anyway to gauge at this point. Um, but it was interesting to me the degree to nihilism isn't quite the right word, but the fatalism that they sort of reacted to it as like I that they basically were like, I don't really care who's in charge as long as I'm able to feed my family and whoever is in charge isn't actively beating up on me at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. I um I think that one of the things that was most interesting to me in discovering um in particular the Anna character in the novel was you know, I, I was trying to figure out the sense of what does it look like if you're if you're a Russian and she's not an ordinary Russian, right? She's no. a member of the elite. But but there was something very deep here in the Russian relationship with power or with the state and it kind of at least my read is that for a lot of people it didn't really it doesn't really matter if you're a member of the elite or if you're not many of them have a very um it's this weird paradox of like the state is fundamentally unjust and yet it's worthy so there's this sort of weird kind of almost spiritual aspect i might say to to the state and its power and the fact that like it just sort of it just sort of is right turnov always talks about like the kind of connection between the russian state yes. as an arm of god almost which was interesting to me and he's he got his own sort of like crazy third rome neo-fascist like oh, he's you know deeply fucked up. yeah yeah he's a very and he's not a normal uh he doesn't kind of what i would he doesn't have what I would describe as like the kind of normal Russian, like wily man approach to the state. Cause I think, I think a lot of Russians and, and actually there's Russian sociologists, you know, going back into the Soviet era have kind of studied this phenomenon. And there's some really interesting, um, really interesting stuff written about kind of with the Soviet man, you know, and, and how it's, there's been more con continuity in that profile, um, even up to the present, then then sort of discontinuity, and and it was striking to me that like you know we think about this from from an American or Western standpoint, and you're like, okay, yeah. I have a view of my own rights, I have a very expansive view of my own freedom and agency, and uh, the state, uh, in some respects, sort of exists to kind of facilitate that and to create the conditions under which i can sort of thrive and flourish and in in the soviet sort of social or you know as russian sociology like there's there's actually a view of like okay it's it's more patience than it is protest right so you think like 
why aren't people out on the streets protesting the war in Ukraine? Why, aren't, you know, like, well, there's just sort of this view of like, you don't just go out and protest things; you sort of just grit through them, right? Yeah. Um, there's this view of like, you can take the sort of active displeasure and almost mockery of the Russian state, the system, even Putin, but that doesn't mean that you demand full rights and freedom from it, right? Right. Um, so there's this view; it's almost like this perspective that I'm going to, I'm going to eke out small victories where I can to take, to, to give myself some sense of dignity, but I'm not out there calling for, you know, a Jeffersonian democracy. And there's a much more limited view, I think, of what's possible because the state is seen as this sort of predatory and eternal thing, but that's, it's also sort of fundamentally on some kind of mission and somewhat worthy and good also. And all those things are kind of bottled up together. So I, I was really struck by that um, when I was doing my research and felt like, <clears throat> you know, it was important that like Anna in the novel, you know, she's, she is doing things that to us, you know, on the, are very risky, but she's not doing them to like change Russia. She's not doing them to even like fully change her own position. She's almost doing them. There's a line that I think is, that I think captures her position well, which is she has a line in the novel, like I'm going to steal from a thief and I'm going to get away with it. Like that yeah. is ultimately what she is after. And it's, it's far less than any of us with our perspective on our rights would be after, but for her, that's victory. And that's what she wants. This is a good place to bring in a quick passage from the book, if you don't mind me reading it real quick. Yeah, please. So this is early on. This is early on in the book. It's uh, Anna reflecting on St. Petersburg. Okay. So it says, her Peter was the second city of the new Ruski Mir, a Russian world battened down against a hostile and degenerate West. But the trenches, the bloodletting, the air raid sirens, well, to Anna... That night, there were faint thunderclouds on a faraway horizon. The special military operation in Ukraine, the war, had twisted deep into the Russian soul, but it had been slower to disfigure the body. Apple and Nike stores were gone. McDonald's has been renamed Tasty, and that's it. Parts for Western-made cars now had to be purchased through online dealers. There were occasional and limited shortages at the grocery and department stores. But as Anna had heard whispers of the Soviet days and experienced herself as a young girl in the dead empire of the wild 90s. The Russian capacity for suffering was limitless, unfathomable. And the present was nothing, a light graze on a body furrowed by deep scars. Tonight they would eat well and expensively. They would just keep on going. And I wrote in the margins here, next to it, I wrote, an entire country with battered women's syndrome. And I didn't quite realize... Not to say too much, I didn't quite realize the connection I was making at the time. But your take on that, modern Russia is a country with battered women's syndrome and that's them just sort of just taking it one step at a time, trying to survive. Yeah, I, um, I think that we truly don't understand how deeply ingrained kind of in the in the psyche and the sort of spiritual mindset of many russians like this idea that we can just grit through it and yeah. suffer our way to the other side you know it's not fundamentally an american strong suit i would say um but 
I, you know, I think so many Russians would have memories of the Soviet collapse and would have memories of of what it was like it, in the 90s and would just kind of feel like, you know, um, we can we can get through it. And, and frankly, it's been worse than this and it'll probably be worse in the future, but this isn't really that bad, you know, and, and I think it, it fundamentally does come back to this view on the state. Whereas, you know, I think we would have a perspective here that in America um, or across most of Western Europe, that this kind of condition domestically where, you know, there are increasing privations, a lot of inflation, um, people being, you know, young men being conscripted to serve in in a war that very unclearly and indirectly benefits, you know, ordinary Russians, if not quite the opposite. Um, though we would have a view that the state that's doing that, the political party that's doing that, like, is like should be ousted, <laughs> you know, should be voted out, tossed out, <laughs> forced out, right? And um, you know, if you don't think that that's possible and by the way also if you think that these kind of transitions typically are accompanied by even worse instability violence chaos you know a lesson you can take from the 90s is actually the 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 lawlessness um that that was rife was not the result of some sort of like creative process of getting to a better democratic future but was actually the result of the collapse of a system, right? So like, you know, that period of time is the result of pushing the state too far or the state sort of wobbling and then collapsing. Um, you know, if, if a lesson of political transitions is that they're worse than just living under the boot of the state and kind of taking what you can, well, I mean, all of a sudden you're to a point where bad or Roman syndrome, whatever you want to use, you know, you don't, you don't get the divorce, you don't move out because it's going to be even worse. Um, so I think that, you know, and again, these are, these are generalizations and you could find many, many Russians who would probably have a much more inspiring take on the future for their, of their country and would, would be demanding profound change. But, um, you know, I think it's relatively clear from the, albeit, uh, you know, sort of, uh, hit or miss polling and just the the lack of popular response to the war yeah. that you're seeing uh, you know a country that's just saying look we're gonna we're gonna grit through this to the other side the russian way of war has been to kill everything that moves until there's no one left to oppose you i think putin learned this really in chechnya Bashar al-Assad, well, he learned it from his father, but I think Putin certainly remind him of, reminded him of this in Syria. Is there a way to prevent this kind of same outcome in Ukraine, the years of bloodshedding that just leaves waste to an entire country that we saw in Syria? Like, Do you think Putin can, can still shoot his way out of this problem? Well, I think, I think a lot of that depends on the, um, you know, the level and the duration of the support that we and our largely European partners provide. You know, I, I think that uh, the the Russian way of doing things is, I mean, frankly, the way of a lot of warfare in human history, which is, you know, we are just going to, this, is, this isn't 
American counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we're trying to win over yeah. local populations. This is just, we're going to, if there's resistance, we're going to destroy everything and we're going to kill all your people and we're going to deport a lot of them. And, um, you know, we're going to consume the territory that way, you know, and well, obviously I think there's a, there's been a tendency to either view the Russian military as like a midget or 12 feet tall with not a lot of room in between. And so, you know, before the war, it's like, well, it's going to, you know, the Russians probably win in three days. It's this, you know, extremely advanced you know, military. Well, in fact, what we've seen over the past couple of years has been that the military probably reflects a lot of the problems in the society, right? And yeah. and the government, and, and it's not as effective as, you know, many Western analysts thought it would be. But it's also not three feet tall, you know? So, and Ukraine is very important to Putin and the people around him and increasingly to the society. Um, and I think we're seeing a situation where ordinary Russians are now sort of battening down the hatches to be engaged in this war for the long term. It looks like it's going to be a long and bloody slog in any case. Um, but whether or not Putin is able to eventually, you know, take more territory or maybe even further down the line, uh, get to his original strategic goal of, you know, installing a client state, um, you know, in, in Ukraine. Um, I think a lot of that will depend a lot. Of, it'll probably take years and a lot of it will depend on whether we keep uh, or whether we have the sort of, you know, political will and the resources to keep our eye on the ball and to resist that from happening. I think the surest way to prevent Putin from doing what he's done in all these other places um, and in, in the parts of Ukraine that they've fought in and controlled is to, you know, give the Ukrainians what they need to win. You know, one of the things that keeps me up at night, apart from like with this, as far as this war goes, apart from like our own issues that could potentially really change the game in Putin's favor is the deportations of Ukrainians to the Far East. I think yeah. there's some really dark stuff going on right now that we barely know about. Yeah, that's I think that's right. We, we've um, it's very easy, I think, to lose the thread on the war and, and on Russian objectives because you can kind of just say, OK, well, you know, you can push a lot of it out of out of sight, out of mind and um, you can get hooked on narratives on the far left and frankly the far right of our spectrum that it doesn't really matter yeah. to us and we should we should just you know sort of let them figure it out um you know i mean i think it's clear that the objective as defined you know it, it as as putin has said and written and as the russian military is behaving is that ukraine actually doesn't exist as a nation, yep. it's part of a, the people who live there should not have their own cultural expression, their own freedom, their own government disconnected from the power vertical in Moscow. And frankly, the, you could even go a step further and say that the deportations um, all the way up to the letter, the sort of infamous letter that Putin wrote about you know going back into history and sort of reframing Ukraine as being nothing but a Russian vassal state at best. Like all of that is just you know essentially a declaration that we're going to, if we win, if Moscow wins, you do not get to exist. You know I think that is a big part of the objective here, uh, and and one that you know if you if you walk that high level policy on down, you get to 
deportations, you get to taking kids, you get to just the, you know the the destruction or the, the the looting of cultural artifacts, destroying infrastructure, you know, destroying anything of cultural significance um, because it doesn't you know it's not valid. It's not it, it they don't they should not and don't exist as people. Couple quick questions before we wrap because I know you got to go soon. What's your what's your writing routine like? Uh, any quirks or rituals? Uh, lots of rituals. I probably lots of quirks too. I uh, I try to write pretty much every day. Um, I typically will go and I sit at a coffee shop. I find that I've got three kids under eight, and most days at the house, then you know you're sort of. It's hard to get yeah. that that kind of focus with writing, which is very different from consulting or a lot of other jobs. Like you really need blocks. You know, you you absolutely need longer blocks of time to really work. Like doing it in thirty minute increments, forty five minute increments. You can do some stuff there, but you need longer stretches. So I go. I sit at a coffee shop. I have a cup of coffee in the morning. I try to do a session from like eight fifteen, eight thirty, if I can, up until lunch. Um, yeah. At lunchtime, I'll typically like do other things, maybe check some email, like do a phone call, actually have lunch with somebody. Sometimes you need to talk to another human because you've been so immersed in the story <laughs> that you need to pull yourself out and actually realize that there is a world of, you know, that, that exists outside of your, your story. Um, and then I'll, you know, if, if, I, if I'm able from a scheduling standpoint, I will go back in and I'll do another, another run in the afternoon. Um, for me, the victory is not on it on any given day is not uh how do i feel about the writing or anything like that it's just word count i'm trying to get to somewhere between two and three thousand words a day um and i kind of know that i won't know <laughs> until the process is until i'm much further down the line if those words are going to work and in what context and you know, if it's going to be discovery work to get to character setting another piece of the story, or if it's something that's really going to go in the final version. So I just kind of, I view it as like, I've just got to show up every day. I take a very, almost a clock punching mentality to it of like, this is a, you know, this is a like 8.30 to 5 p.m. kind of job. I punch in, I punch out. Um, it doesn't matter if I feel inspired that day. It doesn't matter uh how much sleep I've gotten or how I feel about my life. I'm just going to sit down and do it um, as if there were some external, you know, force or boss pushing me to, yeah. to go and get the words down on paper. Cause I'll tell you there are days where I sit down and I'm well rested. I'm happy. I'm at peace with the world. And uh, you know, I feel like they're actually not productive writing days, you know, like the, whatever, for whatever reason it didn't come. And then other days where you sit down and you're like, well, I had three whiskeys last night and I'm really mad. And, yeah, it's not a great start to the day. And, you know, the kids were yelling and everyone was late this morning and you sit down and like by, you know, 11 AM, you're like rolling on something that just sort of appeared. Yeah. And then you, you go, my, my overall approach is one where I say, look, um, like if you're putting an album together, you know, maybe there's 13, 14 tracks, but you probably wrote, you know, 40 and then, before you worked it down to the, to the number that you've got on the album. Like I write, you know, the, the books are somewhere between 115 and 130,000 words. And I probably write about four to 500,000 words per novel. Uh, Jesus Christ. So I, because I can't find the right, I, I, I have to dig around and figure out what's really going to work and what's a distraction. And, 
you know, what darlings need to be killed and all that kind of stuff before it, before it really takes shape. So, and, and then I probably go through, um, I have a first, I, I will typically sprint to get a first draft done. I won't go back and edit really. I just go. So for the first, I would say in, you know, the first three to six months of a, of a book are just getting that first draft done. And then I'll go back to, you know, try to put it away for a little bit. I'll go back to it and then I'll start just, you know, cutting things, making big notes. And then from there, it's just sort of every, I'll usually take a pause and do another round of research as well, somewhere Mm -hmm. between the second and the fourth draft of like, there might be 10 books that I've realized I need to read or I need to go back to this other. And I I, I try to refrain from doing that too much in the early stage because I'm really trying to prioritize just getting the, the, the initial ingredients for the story sort of on the table. And then I go back into the research. I figure out where that can get dolloped in or where it should, shouldn't. Um, and I'll just start, I'll refine, I'll refine, I'll refine. Um, and I probably do, I mean, in total, it kind of depends on how you keep track, but you know, I probably do somewhere around 10 drafts uh, or 10 editing passes through. And then toward the end, it becomes this sort of maniacal thing where like the guts of the story are there, but you, you, I'm sweating every single word. I read the books out loud to myself to figure out how they sort of sound. Um, and it becomes much more detailed and, and maddening toward the end in that respect. But um, it's a, it, it's, it's a little bit of chaos, I would say, throughout the whole thing. And I, I don't outline. Um, I don't find that to be helpful. I don't find that to be helpful. I, I know a lot of people who do, but I, I find the outlines that's, they, I think they sort of, for me, they deaden the story and the voice and they make it seem more sort yep. of uh, predictable. And so I just, I don't do any of that. Yeah. What's up with book three? What can you tell us about it? Anything? So it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm congrats. L- l- thank you. Uh, I'm putting the final touches on it. Um, it is, uh, it is a mole hunt. So it is very much a kind of modern homage to Tinker Taylor. Uh, Proctor returns uh, in the, in the George Smiley role and, Mm-hmm. Basic premise is um, there's there is a very well placed Russian mole operating inside Langley. Who is it? Um, and Proctor is brought in to help, you know, solve that question, solve that riddle. So it was uh, also hard to write. I thought it would be easy again. I'm discovering that there's a pattern here where I think the books will get easier and they actually don't. Uh, this one is it, it has. You know, it, it does bounce around between Moscow and, and, and Langley and a few other places, uh, but it's much more of a uh, look into the CIA itself and uh, kind of a mystery around who this who this bull is among our sort of cast of suspects. So it, it was fun to write in that sense because the other two books are not really mysteries you know uh and mm-hmm. so this one has that mysterious kind of question up front is like who is this of the cast of characters we've met you seem interested in flawed characters working at the heart of repressive regimes yeah. trying to hold on to their humanity while everyone around them loses theirs will we sort of see that same dynamic with proctor in langley mm. i like that that's a good i might steal that actually when i frame the book i hadn't thought about it that way <laughs> <laughs> I uh, look. I, I think. Um, I think there's elements of that for sure in the third book. The way that I have 
thought about this one is it's it's a lot of pe- a lot of the characters in the novel are dealing with the twilight of their careers. Yeah. And so they're really wrestling with like what does it mean to be loyal to a place that doesn't really love me back, you know? Um what was it all for? And is it worth making sacrifices for the agency? And what do those look like and what do they mean? And what does friendship look like over, you know, decades in this business? And so Proctor is really wrestling with all of that. And I do think uh, that there are, as, as you wisely note, I think some threads connecting her to Miriam and to Anna dealing with like, what does it, what does it mean for me to be me or to get what I want in a system or in a construct where like, you know, that's hard. And there's, there's plenty of people pushing back against me. And I think, you know, obviously the CIA is a little bit, you know, it's not, despite what many might think, it's not a repressive autocratic regime, but um, you know, it, it's it's the kind of place that uh, it's it is a big bureaucracy at the end of the day that's not your family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what is what is what does it mean to what does it mean to get what you need from it, but also to be loyal to it at the same time? And how do you balance those things? That those are all all big themes in the novel. Before we wrap up, where can listeners find more about you and your work? So you can find me on davidmccloskeybooks.com. Uh, you can buy the books pretty much anywhere you get your books. Uh, local indie, go to IndieBound. You know, sort you toward a local uh, independent bookstore near you. Uh, you can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Apple Books. The audio book is now up for um, the books are up for pre-order, but and the mm-hmm. book comes out on October third. The audio book will trail that a little bit and will be out about a month later, but you can pre-order the audiobook now if you're more of a listener than a reader. So the book is Moscow X. It is available October 3rd where all books are sold. Is that the UK and Australia too? No, the UK, Moscow X comes out in the UK on, I think, January 24th. So it's a little bit of a staggered release. Yeah. Okay. So about half of you listening have got to wait a little bit, but we'll have <laughs> pre-order links to all that stuff in the uh, show notes. American listeners, please don't give spoilers. Go get it, guys. David, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Hey, thanks for having me. This was tons of fun. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 